the primary question we were asking in the fall was why? You know, why is there suffering? And uh, we talked about topics related, uh, related to that. And uh, I think a lot of those sessions were recorded if you missed out on some of those. But we've turned a corner and our main question now really for winter and our spring quarter is how do we suffer? Like as Christians, how do we suffer well? Um, what does that look like? And so that's really our, our focus. And so right now we're looking at the Psalms and suffering more in a general sense and we're gonna move to some other topics Lord willing, in the future. Um, so how should Christians suffer? The basic answer that we've given is that because we're united to Jesus, we should suffer the way that he suffered. And one of the main ways that Jesus suffered was to pray the Psalms. And so, so we're called to pray the Psalms, to learn how to pray the Psalms. And so this morning... Our plan is to explore Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we'll look forward to that. And before we attempt to do that, let me pray for our time. Our Father, as always, we, we need you. We need your help. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word today, the words of Psalm 22. Lord, I pray that they would be more than just pretty words or words that just run in one ear and flitter out the other. Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to hear, help us to respond, help us to see you. Lord, that's what we need more than anything. We need to see you. Uh, this morning. And so we pray that you would do that in our time together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So when Jesus suffered, he, he, he prayed the Psalms as expressions of his own faith, hope, and love. And we suffer the way Jesus did by learning to pray the Psalms as our own expression of faith, hope, and love. Philip Yancey, I opened with this. Uh, a few times, he said there are three things that greatly increase suffering, fear, hopelessness, and loneliness. Fear, hopelessness, and loneliness. And the way we fight against those things, we fight against fear, hopelessness, and loneliness through, through prayer, through specifically praying the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to pray, and in the process we find we find faith more and more conquering fear. We find hope more and more banishing hopelessness. We find love more and more overcoming loneliness. In other words, the Psalms, in David Powlison's words, the Psalms teach us how to honestly wrestle our way toward trust in God. I mean, that's, that's a Christian life. That's really what it is, right? We're continually, constantly wrestling on, hopefully honestly wrestling our way toward trust in God. So we looked at Psalm 27 last week as a prayer of faith, you know, beginning to conquer fear. And just to be clear, when we say faith conquering fear, hope, you know, 
banishing hopelessness. We don't mean that in a full and final sense, like I'm going to pray this prayer one time and I'm going to boom, you know, come out the other side, fully, finally uh, exercising faith. No, it's a process, right? God is teaching us and he's growing us in that direction and that happens throughout our whole lives. The good news is today for you and for me, that's where you're going. That's where God is taking you and me. He's taking you to this place of trust. And that will never be fully accomplished in this life. But when Jesus returns, you will trust him fully. And all the stuff, I was thinking about this last night. Maybe I shouldn't share this because it's not in my notes. You know what happens when you get off your notes. But, but I was just thinking, you know, so many of my, my problems, my life is relatively easy. Relatively. And so many of my problems are these internal, you know, just my thoughts, my blah, 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 just all of that stuff. And I just thought, you know, man, there's going to come a day when all that's going to be gone. I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to see him. And I'm not going to be so hung up on this. I'm going to be the right size. I'm going to be small, peripheral, right? Wow, what a beautiful thing, yeah. God is taking us somewhere and he's doing that today. And, and so that's what this is, is we're learning to pray. And so we want to look today at Psalm 22 as a prayer of, of hope that, that more and more, you know, as we, as we learn to pray this Psalm and other Psalms, more and more hope begins to crowd out hopelessness. And again, not in some final way, but in a way that we're moving towards that in our lives. Um, and so for Christians, we're going to talk about hope today. There's a, there's a challenge with that word. And the challenge involves what do we mean by the word hope? Because our culture uses that word very differently than Scripture does. How does... How does our culture tend to use, and, and honestly, we just tend to use it kind of the way our culture does. How does our culture tend to, to use the word hope, or what, is, what does the culture tend to mean by that word? Does that question make sense? Yes. I'm not just blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I think 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, a, a trust in what I want to have happen or want to accomplish. Okay, yeah, personal desire. I want something to happen. I hope it'll happen. You know, personal desire. I hope this happens. Yeah. It's a wish. Yeah. Yeah, all of those are, are right on the money. Yeah, we, we could say it this way. The way our culture uses hope or what it means by hope is, is something like a vague wish. So, for example... I could say, man, I hope the Seattle Mariners win the World Series this year. And if any of you know anything about the Seattle Mariners organization, you, you know that's a very, very unlikely wish, right? I hope they win the World Series. Now, that's how we typically utilize that word. But the Bible... You know, our, our, our translation of biblical words and, and what they mean, the biblical meaning of hope is very, very different from that. Um, how, how, does, how does scripture use the word hope? Okay, trust in God. Yeah, that's, that's the basis for it. Yeah. Something that we're assured of. Something that we're assured of, yeah. Yeah, so, so that, that gets at it. Basically, that those, those are good ways to say it. Another way to say it would be a confident expectation. Scriptural hope is a confident expectation and specifically of relief or deliverance in the future. A confident expectation of relief or deliverance in the future. And I might add, a confident expectation that is rooted in something. It's not just floating out here. As Christians, it's a hope, biblical hope is a confident expectation of future relief or deliverance that is rooted in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a historical precedent, if you will for our hope. Also, we could say God's character, his, his promises, but seen most especially in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Our hope is basically this. If you like a little liturgical deal, I'm here to provide that for you. Right? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's, that's our hope. It's a confident expectation. Okay? Confident expectation of future deliverance uh, or relief rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, another thing that we can say is this. Dan McCartney in his book, Why Does It Have to Hurt?, says this about hope. He says, hope is something we hold on to not when things are going great, but precisely when things look bleak. Suffering is the dark background upon which the rays of hope can be shown in their glory. 
So again, I don't know about you. I tend to want to be in a place where I feel certain things. Right? You know, there's no agitation. There's no stuff. But what we're saying here is that hope typically is is something we hold on to when things are dark, when things are hard. Okay? Um, Here's a picture, I think, of what those words are saying. That is something of what hope looks like. You can see that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like a clear blue, you know, sunny day. It's more rays of hope in darkness. And Psalm 22 is really a written expression of that picture. And that's what we're going to explore today. Any, before I move on, any, you okay so far? Hope? What it is, what it isn't? Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's look at Psalms. So do I say Psalms 22 or Psalm 22? Psalm singular. Singular. Okay. Anybody vote for plural? Because it's in the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 22. I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just messing with you guys. So, so Psalm 22 or Psalms 22, whichever you like, is, is really, it's like that picture of the rays of sun penetrating the dark clouds. In, uh, it's a basic structure, and we'll see that as we get into it. But basically, you could, we could, we could um, outline it this way. Psalms 20 or Psalm 22 verses 1 through 21, basically the psalmist David is in the darkness. I mean, he's just in the darkness. And then there's a significant shift that happens beginning in verse 22 through the end of the psalm, verse 31, where we could say beams of light. Okay? So in the darkness and then there come beams of light. The title of this psalm is kind of interesting as well. The title of it is To the Choir Master According to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. And you say, John, what in the world is the title, The Doe of the Dawn? What does that mean? Well, I don't know if we know exactly for sure, but it could mean, one possibility is that David feels like a hunted deer. Like, he feels like there's these predators all around and he feels like he's being hunted, uh, like a hunted, hunted deer. That's one possibility. Another possibility, so I'm, I don't know Hebrew, but if you're, if you're familiar with Hebrew, vowels are, are points on different symbols. A little different than our than English, but and and if you if you alter one of the vowel points just slightly, very slightly, uh, in Hebrew, the word that's translated dough would then become in English help. And so another possibility is that uh, that really the title is 
help at the dawn or help at daybreak. And the idea would be that perhaps David was praying, you know, in the darkness throughout the night and at daybreak, you know, as, as dawn, uh, his, his, his soul found hope. Is that a better one? Okay. All right, we'll go with that one then. Thanks, Frank. So whatever the significance of the title, the structure of the psalm definitely reflects a darkness to light motif. You can see that in the, in the flow, and we'll get, get into that. So there's this darkness to light motif. David's life, um, in that respect, was taking on the pattern of Jesus. First darkness, then dawn. You know, we've said this before. First the cross, then the crown. First death, and then resurrection. So, um, yeah, that's the structure. In fact, if you, you know, if you know, um, if you know your New Testament, you know that Jesus quotes the opening verse of Psalm 22 on the cross. This is probably a familiar, uh, a familiar verse to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Remember that? Jesus quotes Psalm 22. And typically, I think most scholars believe that even though that's the only verse that's, um, that's quoted, like, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is on the cross, likely he's praying the whole psalm. That, that's probably likely that he's praying this on the cross. Um, continues on. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. For both Jesus and David, the, the darkness that they're experiencing is intensified by God's apparent inaction and apparent silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saying, where are you? I call out to you and you don't answer. So they turn to God with a question, you know, why have you forsaken me? And, and for David, we could say that God's abandonment and, and silence wasn't reality for David. God had covenanted to be with him um, and David felt like God was absent, silent, um, but he wasn't really. David just, David just felt that way. For Jesus, we know that on the cross, the abandonment was reality. When he spoke this word, these words, the sin of the world was laid on him, right? And the father turns his face away, which is mind-boggling and mysterious. Um, I think Dave quoted 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 21, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, um, Jesus took on all our sin and for, for some, for those moments on the cross, 
Jesus was separated from the Father. He was truly abandoned. So here's the significance, I think, for us. These verses give us permission to ask God questions, to speak and verbalize our questions to God. Jesus and David here, so many Psalms teach us that God values your speaking to him. There's 150 Psalms, as we said last week. One thing that teaches us is that God values us speaking to him. And the Psalms teach us how to do that. And specifically, he values you speaking your questions to him. The prophet Jeremiah teaches that too. Do you realize that in the book of Jeremiah, it's a big book. Isn't it like the longest book in the, in the whole canon? I don't know. It's a long, it's a thick book. The book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah asks God why 34 times in the book of Jeremiah. Why God? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? God invites you to speak your questions to him. In fact, he values you speaking your questions to him. And then after speaking this blunt and honest questions, David follows with a but you section. And, and I didn't come up with these, I borrowed these, but you can see how there's, there's a question. And then throughout this psalm, there's, there's a kind of a give and take. David kind of goes back and forth and it, it probably reveals just what's going on in his heart. You know, he's a but you, God. And then he'll switch back and say, but I feel like this. And so there's this constant kind of give and take and it's probably reflective of the state of his, you know, what's going on inside him. And so, so this but you section, he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. David remembers the God to whom he speaks, the Holy One, the one who doesn't forsake those to whom He's pledged himself, and, and that was proved again and again, you know, through David's fathers, through the Israelites. They cried, and God rescued. I mean, you can think of a number of examples where that happened, you know, up to David's current experience. And so David reminds himself of who God is. He says, but you, God, this is who you are. This is who you have been. They trusted in you, they cried out, and God rescued. They trusted and were not disappointed. And you know, in the gospel, we're given the status of loved children and, and the promise that the triune God will never leave or forsake us. And that means God promises, based on his character, he promises to always be near, even when we don't feel like it, even when 
like David, we may not sense or feel his nearness, yet God promises uh, to do that. Okay? So there's a question, why God? Where are you? And then it's, but you, he remembers. He remembers who God is. And then David returns to his present reality. Can you see the realness of this psalm? It's this back and forth, right? So then, then he says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. What David knows from, you know, in his head about God's history, right? It's just like that for us, isn't it? What he knows with his head, his experience says something different. Head versus heart. Yeah, head versus, yeah, exactly. He's like, okay, I know that's true. That's how God treated, you know, our ancestors, my fathers. But man, this is what this feels like right now. But I, I, I'm a worm. I feel like a worm, not a man. He feels abandoned, forsaken, and abused by the people in his life, squashed like a worm, scorned, despised, mocked, insulted, even to the point of having his trust in God kind of thrown back in his face. It may be that some of David's own men have lost their trust in him as God's chosen. You know, they're basically saying, dude, okay, you're trusting in God, you know, where is it? Where's the deliverance? Where, where, where is that happening? You know, and if that's the case, where his own, his own men were beginning to, to doubt, you know, David's call as God's chosen, it's very similar to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. If you remember from Matthew 27, 43, you know, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are saying, they, they basically say the same thing. It says they wag their tongues at him. They're mocking him and insulting him, saying, hey, you who are the Messiah, come down from the cross right now so that we can believe in you. You know, and then they quote verse eight, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This mocking, you know. So that's how David feels. In both cases, for David, potentially for David and for Jesus, it wasn't those, you know, out there. It was, it was those close to him, Right? Like for Jesus, his own people rejected him. For David, potentially, his own men were rejecting him. In the previous you section, David took encouragement, remember, on who God is. Now again, he switches from but I to but you and now he, he remembers um, God's care for him in the past. So now he says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. 
You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So again, he's, he's just, he's, he's wrestling. He's, he's honestly wrestling toward trust in God. Remember, this is what it feels like now, but, but you did care, you have cared for me in the past. And then, and then he appeals to God to act again. He says, be not far from me in verse 11, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Right? Let's continue on. You know, help me. And then he switches again. But I. He expands on his complaint from verses six through eight. Man, it is hot in here. Are you guys hot? No. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they thought they jacked up. Just you, just you. Oh. Yeah. It is so hot in here. Um, yeah, maybe it's a me thing. It's a me problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so he switches again, you know. But you, now but I, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a fragment of pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Wow. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So it seems like the attacks on David, based on, on, on this section, the attacks are not merely verbal attacks. Like, like there's a physical dimension. There's either, there's a physical threat um, that, that, that that's involved, or at least the potential of a physical threat. And um, it seems like what's happening, since the threat isn't, isn't, since he's not being attacked currently, it seems like his mind is kind of spinning. Can you relate to your mind spinning? You understand what I'm saying? Like your mind just starts going and going and going, right? And, and many commentators think that's what's happening here is he, he knows there's a physical threat of attack and his mind just starts racing and spinning. Surrounded by men intent on killing himself, he pictures himself as a small, weak, vulnerable creature, right, that's surrounded by predators. In fact, he, he says, like bulls, right? Like strong bulls. Now, is anybody here into rodeo? Little, little bit? Like, I'm the last person who should be talking about rodeo. I'm a city boy. I don't really know rodeos, but I remember seeing on TV, you know that when they do the bull riding, you know, they strap a guy like a rope, and, and he's using one arm, and there's this bull, and he's, you know, trying to buy. And, and if you stay on for 30 seconds, I don't know if it's 30 seconds. Eight, 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 eight seconds. Oh, eight seconds. Yeah, even worse. 
So if you stay on for like eight seconds or 10 seconds, you win. Like that's a win, right? And, and, then, and then the guy gets bucked off and they got the clown and the clown has to distract because this bull is upset, right? This bull is angry and he's going after people and the rider has to get out, right? Now that's one bull. David feels like he's surrounded by bulls. Like, like think about that. That's, that's scary. He's surrounded by a bunch of wild bulls. And apparently the terror is so overwhelming, it reduces him to jelly. He says, I'm poured out my wa- like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like water. He's just this, he's so terrified. He's like just this bowl of jelly. What I find interesting is that he is this great warrior. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah, that's David, this great warrior. And you'd think, what were we watching? I probably shouldn't say what we were watching. Oh, well, I brought it up. Don't, don't judge me. We're watching this show called Reacher. Have you heard of Reacher? Okay. He's like this big, I mean, he's this huge dude. Like not the Tom Cruise Reacher, Tom's a little tiny guy, but Reacher is like this ex-CIA or something. He's like 6'4", and this dude is jacked, if you, if you, watch, the, if you watch the show. And like, that's who I wanna be, because like, he's not afraid of anybody or anything, and he just goes and takes care of business by his own strength, right? So, so you're going, John, what's going on here? No, this relate, like David is a warrior. He's a strong warrior. I mean, I always picture David as not being afraid of anything. Mm-hmm. Like he took down Goliath. Like he took him down, you know? And, and yet here he is, you know? He's just like us. Even the courage to cut off the, the, the piece of things robe. Yeah, right, right. Okay, we got, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, good, good, yeah. Sometimes words are more scary, you know, that verbal opposition. Maybe that's overstating it, but but yeah, that, 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 Jenny. Well, it's so heavily prophetic of Christ's death. Yeah. I'm wondering, did it all physically happen to him like he alluded to before, or did it, or was he just, was his suffering heart somehow God gave him a glimpse into Christ's suffering in the future? I don't know, I mean, it's like this. You know, did he, was it prophetic on David's part, on David's part? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't suffer, but yeah. he didn't experience all of that. <laughs> and I, I want to say yes, it is prophetic. Like all the scripture is pointing to, and so David is penning these words 
that, that rightly convey his experience, and yet he wrote more than he knew. Mm-hmm. Which is Let's put how it that way. In with how we follow, <coughs> we experience a little piece what God has ordained for us to experience of perception. We connect with Christ in our suffering. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yep. the way he's doing that. And yeah, very good, very good. Yeah. Level. Absolutely. Yeah, Roz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can totally relate to that. And so he's worked himself up into this, into this state. And one commentator says it like this. Speaking of verses 14 and 15, this is probably the most vivid description anywhere in the scripture of a state of total panic. So, I mean, he has worked himself up into a state of total panic panic um, yeah and and we uh, Jenny was talking about they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots I mean yeah that that happened to Jesus we read in the in the New Testament so you know whatever's going on with David, this ultimate humiliation of being stripped naked and his clothes basically going to the person who draws the longest straw. They get to keep his clothes. I mean, so total panic, total humiliation. Um, Then there's the imagery of having pierced hands and feet, obviously anticipates Jesus on the cross. So yeah, a, a, a profoundly prophetic psalm that David pens out of his own experience, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like a foretelling of... Yeah. That, you know, it's that, that prophecy is yep. only being fulfilled. Yeah. yeah, a foretelling, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then it's sort of like um, a, a picture of warfare and surrender at the same time, right? I mean, is it like... I, I think... Mean, Jesus yeah. surrendered, but he's in the depth of warfare as well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like he's saying, he's, he's surrounded by enemies yeah. that are basically going to kill him. Gonna kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and even, even potentially his, his friends, or at least some of his friends, are saying, hey, dude, you know, you said you're trusting in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver you then, if you're really God's chosen. Let him, let the Lord take care of you then. And so David's alone, he feels all alone under attack. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, we have to remember that, um, that he was anointed the next king. 
he, he knew that. He was there. He was at his own anointing. And now here he is in this totally other place. And it's kind of like, well, God, you promised me that I would be king, but I may not live out. Yeah. You know, and, and who's going to accept me as king because all these people have all these terrible things to say about me? Yeah, good. You know, I mean, that's got to be making it extra hard. Good. I love it. You're wrestling, wrestling with this psalm. That's 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 that was my goal. Um, so let me let me move us along. So hopefully we can we can get through a few more things here. Um, David then makes another request. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. And remember, in those days, dogs were not little toy poodles. Dogs were wild, ravenous, right? Deliver me from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So David cries to God. Um, he cries to, to the God he feels has forsaken him. And again, this is, this is what honestly wrestling with God, uh, honestly wrestling toward trusting God looks like. That's what he's doing. And, and that's what the Lord wants to teach us to do uh, as well. Um, and, and here's the thing. The very ability of David and you and I to continue to cry out to God, even when we feel he's not there or not listening or not helping, even the ability for you and I to continue to talk to him, to speak to him, is evidence of his grace and his nearness to us. That's evidence that he doesn't forsake his children. So in Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21, David and Jesus talked to God about the experience of darkness and, you know, bordering on hopelessness. And then suddenly in verses 22 through 31, there are beams of light that pierce the darkness. Things take a, a surprising turn. I'm just going to read through this and we'll try to make some application. Then in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Here's what I want you to notice. There's suddenly hope of future deliverance. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like, right? Notice, I will. There's this future tenses. He's, I will, I shall. I will is, is all throughout this. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He does hear and he is going to take care of it. He has heard, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat bread and be satisfied. They will. I have hope for that. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations 
All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Right? Even those, there, there's, there's resurrection, right? I mean, it's, it's wild. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Something's happened. Dan McCartney says it this way. He says, this is is not a comfortable psalm. It's a cry of anguish. At times it gets close to despair, but hope for future deliverance based on what God has done in the past and especially on his word prevails and enables the sufferer to overcome. John? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of what I'm going to cut out because we got to... Yeah, go ahead, Neil. In verse be, try to be brief, okay? Verse 25, from you comes my praise. And I'm wondering, is that a sign of the Holy Spirit? Because from God comes his praise. Yeah, could be. Yeah, good. Good connection, yeah. Yeah, your spirit is working in me and enabling me to praise you mm-hmm. in the midst of mm-hmm. the darkness. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so, so this psalm was quoted by Jesus and by David, obviously. And um, it's an important psalm because it was also applied to Jesus by other New Testament writers. And so here's the thing. If Jesus can cry out why to God, then we can too. And when we do that, Jesus wasn't asking for information. He was, when he said why, it wasn't like, hey, I just need some more info. He was expressing his sense of abandonment and loss. Um, Let me see here. So so the power of this psalm comes in its raw honesty and anguish. And, and, And what's beautiful about it is that hope is never fully lost. And it's not hope that's a vague wish. It's not hope based on you know, what we know will happen in the here and now, it's hope based on the character of God and his promise to restore the world. As, as we said, the gospel is this, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. In the gospel, God has given us himself. That's what's been given. And in the gospel, God has also promised. He's also promised things. The gospel is what's been given and also what has been promised to us. And the return of Jesus is what's been promised. And like I said, that means that we're going somewhere. No matter what our darkness is today, we are going somewhere. We're going to a renewed earth where we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. One person said it like this, Christ's return is the amen with a capital A, the feast we are headed toward and bear witness to. It is not effort or sorrow, but his return that will complete and fulfill us. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. It's not probable. It's not likely. It's inevitable. 
because Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Um, let me see if I can get through this real quick. Have you ever heard of the poem from John Piper, The Innkeeper? Innkeeper? Okay. So, Innkeeper, it's a Christmas poem. It's a great poem. You should look it up and read the whole thing. But Piper imagines that just before his crucifixion, he goes back to Bethlehem to the inn. And he, he wants to pay his respects to the innkeeper. So 30 years have passed. He wants to pay his respects to the innkeeper because, remember, Herod sent the slaughter squad, right? And Piper imagines that the innkeeper paid a heavy price for housing the Son of God. The innkeeper's wife is killed and his two sons are killed as well. Piper's riffing on scripture here. And so now 30 years later, Jesus comes to pay his respects to Jacob, the innkeeper. And Jesus says this to Jacob, the innkeeper. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. And then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why that one should live, another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will rise with life and breath, your wife and Ben and Joseph too, and I and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. This is what Jesus says to each of you is that everything lost, everything taken will be returned and then some. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. John Piper, it's called The Innkeeper. Yeah, it's a pretty famous, he, he, I don't know if he still does it, but every Christmas he would write a Christmas poem. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth your time, the whole thing. Uh, I had more to say, but we're out of time. And like last week, I would love for you to do some homework with this psalm and spend some time with it and follow some of the homework uh, suggested there and make it your own, make it your own prayer. Learn, have God help you to learn how to pray the Psalms. And man, I always think, oh, am I gonna have enough to say? And we always have like way, way too much. So thanks for your patience with me. There's all oh, the stuff that was gonna, that you were gonna hear was amazing. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Let me, let me pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalms. Thank you for Psalm 22. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to honestly wrestle toward trust in you more and more. Lord, that is where we're headed. That's, that's where we're going. And so we're, we're hopeful on that account. And just help us to, to cooperate with, with you in that. Even today, even this week, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.